The Trail Less Traveled is a podcast and outreach program dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. Currently, the show brings in very little income and in an attempt to become financially independent while keeping the show ad-free. I'm asking my listeners to consider supporting the show on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can help support storytelling and our educational outreach programs. Learn more at traillesstraveled.net. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today, The Trail Has Traveled is being recorded in the Missoula Valley. I'm sitting here with Paul Robinson and Neva Hassanen. Neva was a former student of Paul, and she's currently a professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana. Paul was born in the Belgium Congo, now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He's a historian by training and passion, and he is passionate about education and the state of our planet. He taught African and environmental studies for 40 years. Now this evening, Neva is going to be doing the interview. And I interviewed Neva not that long ago, and Paul had a major influence on her life. So that's what kind of led to this interview. Every now and then, I open it up to the community and step back as more of a producer. And I'm really excited to sit here while you interview your friend and your mentor, Paul. So thank you so much, Neva. Thanks, Mandela. It's great to be here and to have a chance to visit with Paul kind of deliberately and to think about the trajectory of his life and work. And Paul, I thought we would start by talking a little bit about your childhood in what was then the Belgian Congo. You were a missionary kid and grew up there with your three brothers. Tell me, what was it like to grow up in the Congo? Well, I'm going to preface this with a little tiny story from Rajasthan in India when I was there visiting some of my students a few years ago. So I sat in this village in Rajasthan and watched a traditional potter who turned clay on an ancient stone wheel. Potter's hands are strong, but they're also incredibly sort of supple and sensitive. So the clay turned dizzyingly on this great big stone wheel. And I watched him as he did that, and this clay formed sometimes through really hard kinds of clay, and then other times it was just so soft, and eventually he came up with this wonderful clay pot. And then I watched, he took a string, and he brought this string along the bottom of the clay where it was attached to the foundation, and he cut it away. And I've often thought that our lives are kind of like that. We're each a lump of clay, and potters being our life experience, our places that we've grown up, places that we've been, places that were formed. So, as you're doing, Africans will often, will always ask you, 
who are you? Long before they ask, what do you do? Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's exactly what you've done. So yeah. the clay I was formed was fairly the Belgian Congo. And that kind of dates me. Um, so you're talking to somebody who's 71 years old, <laughs> whose life intersects with late colonial Africa, whose life went through the independent struggles and, and wars and conflicts and sometimes peaceful transitions. Because most of Africa was in the possession of one or another of Europeans, you know, Europe's nations. So for the first eight years of my life, Ava, I lived in a little tiny African village on an old mission station, border between what was then Sudan, now South Sudan, and what was then the Belgian Congo, now the Democratic Republic of Congo. My parents were missionaries. I hope nobody turns us off with that because it's a good story. <laughs> they had gone to Congo to bring Christianity to the people there. They were educators. My childhood memories were, are kind of somewhat foggy after all of this time. But it's mission music, endless church services, playing with Congolese village children, family compounds in remote villages, no electricity, no running water, no just dirt, dirt tracks. People move, moving either by foot or maybe by bicycle, a few trucks on the road. Bananas fields, maize, cassava, mangoes, endless mangoes, the best mangoes you would ever have possibly tasted. Rich and peaceful fields. Women, men bent over, swinging hoes in endless cycles of preparing the land, planting, weeding, harvesting. Cycles that are paralleled at different times by endless hunger, too. Seasons of hunger. Homes on hill slopes, smoke curling out from the grass eaves through grass roofs. Hunters combing the forest for meat for their villages. Oxen and plows pounding cassava milk. It was incredibly calm and idyllic. (laughs) I didn't know it at the time. I was privileged. I had a good sound meal every day. I slept on a bed that I didn't have to share with anybody. I had cement floors. I had a tin roof. Well, actually it was grass when I was little, but it was good grass. (laughs) I didn't spend much any time out in the fields. I didn't spend any time gathering water. I assumed that everybody lived as I did, but they didn't. My first real memory was in early 1960, began to hear rumors of this thing that they were calling independence, Uhuru, when they're going to be set free from the Belgians and everybody's going to have a little bit of heaven. Then reports of armed and dangerous militias, starting out down towards Kisangani, which was in Stanleyville, named after the explorer, rather ruthless explorer at that, (laughs) moving ever closer. And one day a radio message coming in saying, get out now, quickly packing our car, driving down these dirt roads, encountering barriers, often with drunks and militia soldiers, um, being held up at one of them, finding our way to Uganda. Belligerence, but all part of a deal of coming to realize that Africa was in a new and different place. Before long, I realized I was becoming a refugee. In retrospect, I mean, we thought we were just leaving, but I was becoming a refugee. We had to go to another country and we couldn't come back. All our home, our kids, I mean, our, our friends, everybody was, was gone. Instant and instant, we were in a different country. What does that mean to you today, like to think back about being a refugee in, in our world? It gives one a very different perspective on refugees to be forced to leave your home. It's not as if you want to leave. It's not as if you have any intention, but the situation becomes so desperate, whether it was for my parents because of their concern for our safety, much as it is for Guatemalan parents today who are concerned for their kids in the barrios of Guatemala City and gangs, whether it's concern, being concerned for their own safety, for their own way of life or whatever. 
humanity has moved throughout the last, ever since we have been human beings. Human beings have been on the move. But you can't become a refugee and see the world the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you settled in We settled Kenya. in Kenya. And we went from independence in Kenya to the pre-independence struggle, or sorry, independence in Congo to the pre-independence struggle in Kenya. Again, on a mission station with Mau Mau, the freedom fighters in Kenya all around us. You know, began to realize that the Africa of my, even at, even at a young age, okay, that the Africa I grew up with was not the Africa that it was becoming. And I'm beginning to ask some questions. Going through high school in Kenya, encountering very much feelings of animosity towards me, not because of who I was, but because of everything I represented. Again, it changes you, transforms your perspective on life. You can either retreat into sort of a superiority or you can maybe begin to understand why things are the way they are and hopefully begin to and understand that and react to it and respond to it and live in it in a different way and hopefully tra- you know, teach your own children or others. Eventually, that's, that was down the road, okay? But that's, that's, that, that was, those were the seeds of maybe an emerging worldview that, interestingly enough, not everybody had. I mean, some people retreated into their, into their identities, their own identities, rather than try to understand the identities of others. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty transformative experience for an eight-year-old yeah, yeah, yeah. So then the next sort of big memory in my life was when I was in high school, a radio message came through to when I was in, I was in boarding school, so I was three countries away from Congo or two countries uh-huh. away, and the news came on the radio that my father had died suddenly of a heart attack in Congo. So my brother and I went on, we, we were put on buses, Country buses is what they call them in East Africa. Crowded, overcrowded, fast. Uh, the roads were not paved at the time, so it was quite a, it was quite an interesting journey. Struggling to understand what had just what had just happened to us. And in African terms, of course, when you lose your father, you're an orphan, no matter what, if your mother's still alive. Hmm. So not only had I become a refugee, but I also now become an orphan in, by African standards. And so I would say, really, that, that you know, in those experiences right up to high school really shaped kind of who I was, the idyllic childhood of, uh, and then confronting some of the realities that so many other people around the world face all the time. And then six months later, I graduated from high school, and like many other young people, what they call multicultural or third culture people, we uh, emigrated to the U.S., or I came to the States for for university at that point. There was no um, university education for non-citizens. So I came here for university education. All of a sudden, there was a closed door behind me. Africa is gone. So I came back to the States prepared to go to school and become an engineer or an architect. Hmm. How did you end up going back to Kenya? <laughs> so that's where you and so I, I was. I was, a, I was a most unhappy lad. Um, <laughs> arriving in the States at the height of the Vietnam War, Expecting probably to be drafted. For me, thank God for the lottery because my draft lottery number was so high that there was no chance in the world I would go to Vietnam. That also was a point of intensive guilt because my roommates were drafted because of the lottery and had to make a decision about what to do. But late in my first year back in this, in DePa- at DePaul University, I began a, diff- a different journey, a journey that really has shaped the rest of my life walking along the street of a little campus in, in central Indiana, DePaul University, 
I saw this little building and it said Program of African Studies. Hmm. And I said, what? What's this? I didn't even know there was such a thing called African Studies. And I walked into the office and there behind a great big oak desk was a guy with a flaming red beard and a big pipe, Kiko in Swahili, smoke all around him. He said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I said, I grew up in Africa. What is African Studies? And he invited me in and my life was transformed. I changed my major so fast and took every course in African studies I possibly could. I studied history, I studied anthropology. I'm still not sure how I ended up in those disciplines except the two Africanists at, at this little, at this little um, you know, liberal arts university in central Indiana where both one was an anthropologist and one was a historian. But homeless and fatherless, I had an insatiable longing to reconnect with Africa. And so the next seven years were basically reconnecting intellectually to some extent emotionally, but basically acquiring new and different lenses by which to see the continent of my birth. That journey has just made all the difference. It's uh, those lenses that are still forming some 50 years later, because I don't think we ever stop learning. We don't ever stop changing, we, at least we shouldn't. When we do, we become reified like a pair of, you know, like old bones that just don't go anywhere. So it's a lifelong journey of discovery and wonder and awe at this continent that I'd called home, even though my skin is white, and my native language is English. My other native language is Swahili. So, <laughs> But developing an understanding of the continent and the peoples of, of the place of my birth. So then I continued on, went to Northwestern University, which had the finest program of African studies, the greatest library at the time, and ended up studying there for the next three or four years. And then I was told, forget about studying African studies. You're going to be a, end up being a truck driver or a taxi driver in downtown Chicago because <laughs> there's no market for academics. But that wasn't the point. The point was I needed to learn. It just was, it, it was just absolutely an imperative for me to learn. About that time, Africa sub suffered its first really sort of existential crisis, post-independence crisis. There was a major drought that affected the continent from Senegal in the west all the way to the Horn of Africa. And millions of people were displaced. Tens of thousands, probably more, uh, died of hunger. Um, livestock were dying all over the place. Um, the, the heady period of, of sort of early development in post-colonial Africa when all the kinds of new strategies, agricultural development, water development, this and that kind of development, all came crashing down when a, when a, a cycle of drought, really serious drought, affected much of the continent. I was a graduate student at the time, and we a bunch of us graduate students got together with our faculty and we said, we don't, we've got to study this because something's gone wrong here and we can't figure, we don't really know what it is. And so we wrote a proposal, I wrote a Fulbright proposal and we wrote a proposal that was funded to the Ford Foundation to study ecological stress and adaptive mechanisms to environmental stress in the mid-1970s. So Margie and I, my wife, returned to Kenya did some work in the archives in England, returned to Kenya and spent the next year and a half in the deserts of the Kenya-Ethiopian frontier, talking with and learning from community elders of a group of people called the Gabra. They're basically the same language group as Somalis, as Rendili, as a, a number of other people, Eastern Cushitic-speaking peoples, their neighbors of Ma-speaking peoples, which are uh, Nilotics, group of people. Eventually, we know now that they um, occupied the whole of the Nile Valley from, from Egypt all the way down to East Africa. Uh, the influence of pastoralism in much of arid Africa, which is about a third of the continent. Thanks, Paul. What a fascinating and unique childhood 
and young adulthood that you had. Paul, you and I studied together when I was a, a young college student in the early 1980s and I came to Kenya. And at that time, you were a newly minted PhD. And you took me up to the land of the Gabra, which are a pastoralist people who you had studied as part of your doctoral work. Tell us about the importance of the Gabra and other pastoralists, and in particular their ecological knowledge that is shared through oral history that you studied. So one of the greatest privileges of my life was to turn, totally turn the table instead of learning about Africa from what was then primarily Western scholarship about Africa to spending time with Gabra and then sages from a number of different communities in East Africa who shared with me their story. Several things come out of that. One is the importance of narrative and storytelling. I mean, so here I am, a PhD student, okay? Which sometimes just means piled higher and deeper. But, <laughs> you know, with all this academic knowledge, and here I am going to talk to basically people, elders, old men and old women, both, who were non-literate, which by Western standards means uneducated. Well, which I found instead were women and men who were profoundly wise and educated and knowledgeable about their own environment, about their the cycles of cyclical nature of climate, the ecosystem, the rangelands, this production of different forms of vegetation, about their livestock and their health and their medical and everything else, and listening to them and their profound wisdom, not only about the environment, which has been described by many historians and scholars of the environment as one of the most difficult and marginal areas occupied by human beings on this planet. And yet they survived. They not only survived, but they thrived on this environment. Why? Because they knew better than anyone else what the limits and what the potentials were of their environment, and they, they used that to their advantage, basically responding to the ebbs and flows of the environment. When it was wet, they moved to areas that were not so wet. When it was dry, they moved back to those areas which had been, where rain had fallen. I mean, they had this intimate knowledge of the environment. When it came to responding, we discovered, and not only me, but others of, of my colleagues that were, my peers that were doing research in other areas, we tried to put this on an overlay with colonial and post-colonial development strategies, which was all about importing primarily Western understandings of these environments with Western understandings of economics and, and, and settlement and, all, and education and everything else, and finding that they just were like, it was like oil and water. You couldn't mix the two. It was really hard. And trying to come up with strategies that would basically meet the requirements as best as possible of the government as far as, as development, which is often misdevelopment, um, with the knowledge and the wisdom of the people themselves. What that led me to was, again, another insatiable desire, which was to, to when I began to teach, which was to um, basically introduce young people to the wisdom that is found in indigenous cultures and peoples. Because I believe that that wisdom is what is ultimately necessary for us to inhabit this earth more gently and sustainably. So you were one of my first students. 
And I try to give you opportunities not just to hear from me, but to be a, basically a midwife and allow you to hear from them. So from the Gabra, I learned, and I think what we learned, was about living within the seasonal and longer cycles of weather. Weather and climate and rainfall and dry all result in life, death, decay, and renewal. These cycles also about living in community and interdependence with one another. They can't survive as individuals. They survive as community. I am because we are, and because we are, I am. Roles that change with age, maturity, experience, and wisdom. Learning all this from remarkable voices, um, which I could name a half a dozen right here, and they're up in the pictures of the, uh, uh, the, the portraits here. So a significant way to begin to understand the present is understanding the past. Unless we know what the past is, we have no way to occupy the present and to envision the future. It's all together. All is one. The solutions to our present challenges are often found by understanding the individuals and communities have had, that have lived through those situations, their knowledge of the potentials and limitations of the environments in which they live. My scholarship then, and my teaching, became less and less theoretical at one level and much more sort of integrative. I focused on the praxis. Mm-hmm. How, does, how does our knowledge and understanding translate into practice and into the way that we apply that? Not very good for tenure, but I think it's really good for teaching. <laughs> yeah, well, it surely made a big impression on me. And at a time when most so-called development professionals were saying that pastoralists should settle, Mm-hmm. But you were really going in a different direction mm-hmm. in your thinking. And I'm not sure that in the end, maybe it bought us a few more years, because the pressure to sort of conformity with sort of the ideals and the expectations of national governments, who, national governments who are interested in food production and educating their citizens and providing service for them requires settled populations. It's pretty hard to operate a mobile school. It takes a whole lot more, you know. Yeah, right. uh-huh. um, so all of that, you know. But what we did find out is that those people were among the last in the whole region who most closely followed their traditional systems were the last in the region to experience hunger. Wow. Now, in 2023, they've experienced real hunger. So maybe we bought some time, but maybe there are lessons to be learned in that as they continue to occupy those regions. Do you think that they're impacted today by climate change in ways that are different than those historical cycles that you mentioned? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's no question about that. The last time I met and talked to my mentor, his name was Yatani Sorale, and he was considered by the Gabra to be their wisest sage. And interestingly, because he had the deepest sense of their history. The Gabra kept this meticulous solar calendar of 365 days of the year. And they would count the days from a hypothetical beginning of the year, which happened to be the onset of, of rains in the, in the month of November. And they would keep this in for a full year. And they marked out the different number of days of, of this season, of that particular, you know, and then the uh, transition to dry, to dry conditions, and then short rains and medium rains, and on and on it goes. And they predicate their survival on that. And they believe that not only the days, but the years then cycle. And in every seventh year, you will have some, this kind of drought or that kind of heavy rains or whatever. And these were meticulous. My entire thesis is based on that. The last time I was with them, which is now 20 years ago, kind of at the beginning of our real, you know, what we began to really recognize that climate change was affecting 
um, different climates. And, and these play kind of places that are the most marginal are often the, sort of the indicators of what's going on more yeah. widely. They said to me this, they said, we have reached the end of counting. In other words, everything that had made sense to them in terms of their understanding and responding to the environment and responding proactively because what they believed would happen, they had to basically move their animals like on a chessboard and anticipating when the climate would change, when the rains would come or when the rains would end and where they would fall and where they wouldn't. They've no longer made sense of them. And these elders were sitting around with their, literally, literally with their minds clouded because they could no, make, no longer make sense. And so today, the young man who was my research assistant way, way back in 1978, 79, 80, is a herd owner himself and is now in his 60s, an elder, and totally has lost all of his livestock in the last three-year drought, which, which just ended. So yeah, when climate scientists tell us that the most vulnerable are the first to be impacted. They're exactly right. We see this over and over again. And yet we know that it doesn't have to be that way. And so that's one of, that's one of my real griefs. We're listening to Paul Robinson on The Trail Less Traveled. He's telling us about his experiences in northwest Kenya, studying and working with the Gabra, camel-keeping people, pastoralist group that is currently experiencing extreme drought and devastation as a result of climate change. Paul, what are other lessons that we can learn from pastoralists from the Gabra, maybe perhaps the Samburu, who you also worked with for many years. Yeah, and Neva, I would say it's not only those people who are on the margins, but even some of the and all of the communities in the higher potential areas too. Lives have changed so dramatically with uh, in the last, uh, well, especially in the last two decades. But uh, you know, beginning way, you know, much much earlier. The pattern's no longer the same. They, they, they plant in expectations of the rains, and the rains don't fall. The initial rains come, and then they, don't, then they fail, and the, the, the crops that are in the ground, the seeds either rot or don't germinate. Um, and, you know, it just it seems like almost every change is conspiring um, to make people more, more dependent. So chronic hunger, malnutrition, once unknown to the people of the highest potential areas, are now endemic. With seasonal regularity, hunger and malnutrition stalk their communities. And the reality is, so does death. I mean, we really have to rethink what we're doing. And, you know, it, it may seem far away. It may seem like some communities in East Africa. But it's happening right here. We need to recognize that. We just don't need to be fooled by people who refuse to acknowledge it. I'm sorry. That's mm-hmm. just the way it is. Yeah, it you know? is. Yeah. I think most importantly, one of the things I'd hoped to, that was really something that would impact students, is more the values how do people survive? How do people flourish? We're so individualistic. We so want to basically have our own rights. So one of the other people that we spent time with were the Sambru and the Maasai, you know, people who every one of your listeners will probably recognize as those incredible people with the beaded necklaces and, and bracelets and the red togas and the long spears and all the rest of that kind of thing. People with incredible cultural resilience and pride in their, in, in their groups. From them, I learned something different that I think that every student who came away from studying East Africa did. Their core value was something we call incognito. 
which means what? It means respect. It's the very same concept that we find respect for their deity, God, respect for the earth that God has created, respect for each other, and respect for themselves. It's a fundamental word that you find in salud in Spanish, in shalom in, in Hebrew, in salam in Arabic, on and on it goes around the world. Respect. We've lost that. We've lost that respect and understanding for the entire cosmos around them. But that's what it is. And respect then allows you to basically bless each other in the way that you live, in the way that you live your your lives. So one of the lessons... <laughs> can I tell a brief story? Yeah, sure. We were up with a group of students in uh, northern Kenya with one of these groups. We got to the top of a mountain, and we're sitting there with a bunch of American university students, you know, and they're listening with that with rapt attention to these elders who are sitting around with their red blankets on the top of the mountain and their elder sticks. And they're telling the students about a time 100 years ago, 1888, when a cattle disease called Rinderpest stalked the African continent. It was brought in from, from the Middle East on boats to, uh, for famine relief and to start the herds of, uh, to basically increase the herds of uh, the emperor of, Ethi- of Ethiopia, Abyssinia at the time, Menelik. They brought a disease that had never been seen on the African continent called Rinderpest. Within four years, 95 to 98 percent of the cows on the African continent were dead. Wow. It was such, it hit with such virulence. Probably 70 percent of the, of the Cape buffalo were gone and other livestock species as well. Well, if you're entirely dependent on your livestock, when you have nothing, you have nothing. There's no agriculture because the land is too dry. So they were telling the story about how the cattle all died almost immediately. And the story goes on and on, but I'll, I'll just say this. They got down to the point where there was one female cow who had one calf and that was all the milk they had was what she gave them that she had reserved from the calf and I have a gourd over there which is a milk gourd it's probably maybe 18 24 inches long and it contains the milk and ordinarily in, in good times they would pass that around everybody would drink it got to the point where that cow was only giving a cap full literally maybe a quarter of a cup of milk they said, now, what would you do if that's all you had for your entire community, your village, your men, your women, your children, your warriors? What would you do? How would you survive? And, of course, the students began to talk about competition or maybe choosing the best person or this or that or the other thing. And they finally, the students would say, well, well, how did you survive? And they said, well, everyone took their toothbrush stick. It's called a swaki. Mswaki in Swahili, but it's a very fibrous plant. They cut them and put them into a shape of a toothbrush, a little stick, wear it behind their ear, and brush your teeth with it. They said, we each dipped our toothbrush stick into the cap full of milk, and we sucked on this toothbrush stick, and we survived. No, 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 you can't possibly, that couldn't possibly sustain you until the livestock came back or whatever. And they simply responded with this, we're here, aren't we? <laughs> it wasn't one survive and the others don't. It wasn't choosing who would survive. It was the fact that we all survive or we don't survive. Mm-hmm. And if I have one thing I want to communicate this, is that we're not going to be able to survive on this planet unless we reach out and all of us survive. We've got to find a way to do it. We've got to find a way to break through the barriers, to move beyond the barriers, to allow for everyone to have an equal opportunity. Because this planet can do it. Mm-hmm. But only if we treat it gently and we treat each other gently. 
That's a, a great story to end this segment on. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. I'm Neva Hassanen, and I'm interviewing Paul Robinson. It sounds like a great example of Ubuntu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Neva Hassanen, and you're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. I'm interviewing my former professor, Paul Robinson, who was a longtime director of study abroad program in Kenya, run by St. Lawrence University. Paul eventually came back to the United States to live after being in Congo and in Kenya for many years. Paul, you never left Africa behind, no. even though you moved back to the States to take care of your elder family. And you have, in recent years, become involved with a college in the Democratic Republic of Congo. <laughs> this is an amazing thing that you're doing, along with others, because of your belief in education and your belief in the Congo. You told me that the Congo is reflective of the struggle for the planet, for the future of the planet. What did you mean by that? No, I never really left Africa. I mean, I came back to the States to basically direct a global study abroad program, um, which we sent people, students individually to some of the most difficult places in the world. It allowed them to basically engage in service learning all around the world. And what it did was just to confirm everything that we've been talking about, not on, only on an East African sort of level, but on a global scale. But I was given the opportunity right around 2002, met again one of the men I grew up with who had a vision for transformation in Congo. So it's not my vision, it was their vision. Now, here's an opportunity to become involved with something that is a, is, a, is, an, is a vision that emerges out of the context from people who have lived that context and come alongside to accompany them in the way that um, uh, Dr. Paul Farmer would talk about in his work with Haiti in Haiti and other places. Um, and essentially, they had the audacity to suggest <laughs> that change can happen through giving young people a vision to, as Nelson Mandela would say, to be the change they want to be in their own context. And Mandela said that the most, the, 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 the strongest instrument that you can have to change the world is education because you change people's minds. So we have this vision to establish a university in a war zone in eastern Congo in North Kivu province, which was one of the centers of the Great War Congolese War from 1996 to 2003 that took over 5 million lives in that country. And it was still ongoing. The first time we flew into Beni on a small chartered aircraft, we could still hear the thump of, of uh, artillery and the rat-tat-tat of, of the semi-automatic weapon, weapons um, all around us. And yet we went there and, and, and the people met us and they said, you've come to walk with us in this situation. While the UN were getting out that day, we were coming in. Mm -hmm. I was crazy. I mean, we're totally crazy. <laughs> but the vision was that, that we only had a limited amount of time. If you're going to change a country, how are you going to do it? And we believed it was by formative education where we would teach and mentor a different set of values. So it's very, very close to the American liberal arts education here, which is about not only the mind, but it's also about the values and about a service ethic. So mind, heart, and hand. Fifteen years ago now, we established Christian Bilingual University of Congo, 
and through all these last years, which the war never really ended. It's still ongoing. If you pick up your newspapers, you're going to read about Eastern Congo. But why? Why has it been a theater of conflict for the entire period of its, of its, of its independence, which goes back to 1960? Okay? That's 60, some 65 years ago, or 63 years ago. Well, it's because Congo is the richest country in Africa. I mean, the recent estimates are $50 trillion worth of untapped mineral and other kinds of resources. Um, I talked to the former president of Green Mountain University. And he said, Paul, he said, he said, we have, this world has two lungs. One is the Amazon and one is the Congo Basin Rainforest. And he said, in the next, this was like, again, 15 years ago, he said, we're on the verge of destroying the first lung. The first lung is sick. And only, we might even have to realize it's God. He said, there's one, there, effectively, there's one lung of this planet. And that's the eternal grade for He said, whatever you do in this life, make sure that you have an opportunity to try to salvage that one lung. So that's one of our, you know, is, is the Congolese resources. They fuel the war. And the other thing is that fuels it are rare earth minerals. What you're recording this interview on, our cell phone, uh, exists only because of gold, tantalum, and a few other rare earth minerals. And almost all of those are found in the Congo. Lithium, by which we make our batteries, are mined in Congo by child, by children. Um, who are, you know, and other radioactive materials as well. Children who are digging for this stuff and, and ending up sick and dying because of it. And we don't care. I struggle with our electric car industry because we're going to transform our industries, but what are we going to do with those batteries and where are we going to source the raw materials? That's the reason I got involved in education because we're not going to change that until young Congolese say we want to change this ourselves. It's not going to happen by foreign intervention. It's not going to happen by you know, transnational corporations who are looking for maximum profit. It's our young people today who are going to be the consumers of tomorrow and who are going to make those kinds of decisions. And the young people of Congo are going to say, no, we're not going to rape our own forest. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to sacrifice our brothers and sisters you know, on the altar of, of mining. Of, yeah, how, so. how do you run a university <laughs> in a war zone? You know what? You have dedicated women and men and students and parents who say, we are going to do this. And the educational system in Congo had failed. And we said, okay, we're going to give young people an opportunity to, um, to study. And this is what are our values. And we, we broadcast those. We had 70 students our first year. We still only have about 500 students there today. But remember, those students are coming there, and they're finding their way to the city of eastern Congo, despite the presence of militias, despite the killings that are going on, because there's something that's happening there. You know what? I, I believe in young people. Young people will do anything if they believe in it. Mm-hmm. They will go anywhere. They'll tell their parents, I'm going to go to Beni. I'm not going to go to the capital city, but I'm going to go here because I think there's possibility for change. And I want to be a part of that change. And so, yeah, we've, I mean, here we are. We, 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 we opened our doors. We kept them open because the students demanded it all the way through Ebola, three years of Ebola, mm. through 15 years of endemic violence, through two and a half years of COVID, and on and on it goes. And it's women and men who are teaching there, who are staying there, despite the insecurity, despite all of that. And we have now... Probably, I think it's 500 alumni 
who are not only in Congo but all over the world. And they're and you know you go and you talk to their employers, you talk to the, the people that they're running businesses with. I mean, they're they're committed to change. Not everyone, of course, not every, but the majority are. Mm. And so we're beginning to see you know, some of our graduates and some of our new students are running a justice initiative where they are working with the courts and the judges and the legal system to provide pro bono care to women who have been abused, who have lost their land rights. We have a group of young people who are working, who have founded and developed a counseling institute to basically help those who have been traumatized, women who have been raped, young children who have been separated or lost their parents. Uh, we have others involved in solar energy. Congo has no national infrastructure for electricity or for energy. They found a solar power company. Mm-hmm. I mean, businesses, ethical coffee, the coffee trees are still there. Many of them had gone back to Bush, but they, you know, the, and North Kivu Coffee, and some of them operated by some of our young people, our alumni, and we're providing ethical coffee to some of the major companies and and providing good incomes for farmers. Give people opportunities, give them income, give them fair return on their work, on their investments, and you can change the world. Oh, that's great. I love hearing your stories about the Congo and the transformation that's occurring. Before we wrap up, I thought it would be nice if you could share with us some advice, given your experiences living both in several African countries as well as in the United States and what you've observed over time about how change happens. We're listening to Paul Robinson on The Trail Less Traveled and wrapping up here with some advice to take us all home. I used to tell my students... I taught a whole semester of field methods and cross-cultural orientation. I get down to the last class, and the last thing I said, now, you know, we've been studying this now for 14 weeks. I said, I hate to tell you this, but I could have taught you everything in the first five minutes. And they said, oh, come on, what is that? I said, I have three words for you that could shape your life. The first word is listen, okay? If you listen, you will both learn and impact and make a difference the second word i have for you is to listen (laughs) if you listen the world will change because of you the third word can you guess listen those three words listen listen and listen and i feel like that's that really undergirds everything i've done in terms of education of american young students and in congolese and other places and because if you listen you change what is basically your insularity. In order to listen, you have to reach out and find somebody to listen to. Mm -hmm. You move from insularity to encounter. The first thing we do is begin to listen to each other. Once you encounter with listening, you can also begin to engage because listening leads to conversation, leads to interaction. Once you begin to engage with somebody else, you also then begin to establish a relationship. When you have a relationship, you have the potential for understanding. With all of those elements there, you lose that sense of insularity, but you also lose the sense of fear and unknown. And one of the major ways that we did that, Neva, if you remember, what was the very first thing you did when you went to Kenya? I remember going to a mud hut. <laughs> and having a homestay. And having a homestay in western Kenya. Here's this kid just left LaGuardia <laughs> Airport, and all of a sudden was in the mud hut in western Kenya. And that's exactly right. The longest distance any of us can take is across the threshold of a home 
for a person or language or culture that we don't know. And everything changes because we become vulnerable, we become in need of hospitality, we lose all of our power, we have to listen and be receptive. And when that happens, you have a genuine opportunity to turn the tables on relationships of power. Because all of a sudden, the one who comes in with power becomes the one who receives. And the one who receives, we have a saying in Africa that the hand that gives is always above the hand that receives. So if you can turn that table around, you can turn the world around. Uh That's great. Well, we've been listening to Paul Robinson on the trail less traveled, and it's been a wonderful journey to travel with him today. Namaste, Missoula, and listeners around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast, available on every platform. I'd like to thank Neva Passanen for taking the time and energy to interview her teacher and friend, Paul Robinson. If you have someone in your life that you think has a good story and you would like to sit down with them and interview them, I would like for you to reach out to me. You can contact me at traillesstraveled.net. This evening, I'd like to give a shout out to one of the sponsors of the Trail Less Traveled, Big Sky Bikes. Big Sky Bikes has been around since 2008 and the shop is staffed by avid cyclists. Be sure to visit Big Sky Bikes right on the Clark Fork River. And of course, you can learn more at BigSkyBike.com. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, Missoula is a very special place to be. I feel privileged to live here. But remember, with privilege comes responsibility. As a community, let's continue to speak up and advocate on behalf of wildlife and wild places. Conservation is not a spectator sport, so please get engaged.